good to be with all of you, especially if you're a guest, really privileged uh, by your presence here today. I'm just going to say right off the top uh, that a whole bunch of people contributed to this message today as I really just sought to immerse myself in everything I could get my hands on and my ears onto about this topic of forgiveness that we're going to talk about today. Guys like Tim Keller and John Ortberg and Michael Wilkins and Bo Hughes and a bunch of others, some of them that I'll quote throughout, others that won't be uh, cited. But all these guys contributed heavily to everything that I'm going to talk about today. If you've got a Bible, I just invite you to turn right to Matthew chapter 18 if you would. If you don't have a text, all this will be right on the screens for you. You can follow along there. In Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat the person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Let's skip down to verse 21. Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, And he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And then Jesus closes with this. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And so you see the forgiveness and reconciliation thing is such a very big deal to God because when we don't forgive well, when we don't reconcile well, when we don't do the relational repair thing well, the image of Christ that we're all as Christians intended to reflect to the world, it gets smudged and it becomes unrecognizable, frankly. And I know this is one of the very most difficult things that any of us ever try to go do right here. This is it. And Jesus opens the story and he says there's a king And this king went and forgave his servant this absolutely enormous debt, but then his servant went and chose not to forgive a relatively small, minor debt, and that guy became a vindictive person instead of a gracious person. And Jesus sets up and he tells this story the way he tells it to alert us to this spiritual principle that's very, very much in play when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship repair, and it's this principle. If we don't forgive the people in our lives who have hurt us, It's a really good indicator that we have never really opened our heart to the grace of God. That's pretty heavy. There's a guy that tells a story about two apple trees in the month of September. They've been planted next to each other for a long, long time. They've been growing there for a long, long time. And in September, what we know is that apple trees ought to have 
apples on them, right? But one of those trees had apples, and the other one didn't have apples in the month of September. And so we make some assumptions about that, right? One of the assumptions we make is that the tree that has apples on it is healthy and alive and things are going great for that tree. And what we assume about the other tree that has no apples is that it has some sort of health issue going on, doesn't it? Because we know something, that apples on the tree, they're not actually what give the tree life, but apples on the tree reveal whether or not the tree has life. And Jesus says, look, there's no better way to tell that your faith in me is real than whether or not you forgive the people who have hurt you, perhaps even enormously. Not just small things, but really, really big things. There's no better way to tell that your faith in God is real than whether or not you forgive the people who have hurt us. And see, when we stay angry at people, when we hold grudges against people, when we get bitter with people, when we refuse to forgive people, what happens is that stuff, that unforgiveness, causes us to feel really quite self-righteous about ourselves, doesn't it? And as one guy I ran across this week puts it, he says it also causes us to be more like Satan than like Jesus. That stings. Why in the world would that be? Well, it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is quite simple. We who call ourselves Christians, we've been forgiven this absolutely enormous debt of sin, which makes every moment of every single day a staggering gift of grace from God. We are all, see, just like the first servant who was forgiven an absolutely enormous debt. That grace he received should have made him incredibly gracious to everybody else, but it didn't. And when we don't forgive, when we hold on to grudges, when we get bitter, what we're doing is we're locking ourselves in prison. Throwing away the key in lots of instances. And self-centeredness grows when we stay angry, when we hold things against people, when we continue to think of people who have hurt us as owing us, and it locks us up in the prison of being controlled by the people who we have not forgiven. How many people have stayed mad, perhaps at their mom or their dad or their brother or their sister or some former friend, some colleague, some roommate, maybe a spouse or ex or whatever, and they've just held on to that anger and that unforgiveness, perhaps for an extended period of time, which really means that they've been controlled by the very people who they haven't forgiven. They're not free. They're quite in prison. Frederick Beekner, who's a great author, he puts it this way, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. He's being sarcastic. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And none of us want that, which is why forgiveness matters so much, because there's not any better indicator of the spiritual condition of our hearts than whether or not we choose to forgive. That's why this matters so much, and every single one of us needs this. We might not think we need it today, but we're going to need it someday, and lots of us, while we think we don't need it today, really need this today. 
And Jesus very wisely teaches us through the three pieces of what forgiveness is. From Matthew 18, 27, he's talking about the king, what it looked like for the king to forgive the servant. Then his master, Jesus says, was filled with pity for him, and he released him, and he forgave his debt. Three pieces to the king's forgiveness, filled with pity, he released him, and he forgave his debt. And Jesus teaches us that if we want to avoid being the skeleton that we ourselves feast on, if we want to avoid feasting on ourselves, if we want to avoid the prison of our anger, the very first thing we have to do when someone has wronged us is be filled with pity for the person who has wronged us. And just so we're clear, being filled with pity for someone especially someone who's wronged us, is like a million miles away from feeling sorry for them. Way different than feeling sorry for someone. As a matter of fact, that word that's translated from the original language, filled with pity, sometimes gets translated into the words, have compassion, which is a great way to say it. But literally what that phrase means is that your heart goes out to the other person who hurt you. That's difficult. Your heart goes out to the person who caused you great pain. It's a really great phrase. It's so clear. It's so your heart goes out so vivid. And there's not any wiggle room in it. It means your heart goes out to them. It means your heart goes out to them. It means you're actually identifying with the person, the very person who caused you great pain. One guy says, our heart going out to the person who hurt us means that you're putting your heart actually into them, into their life, into their body, into their experience in such a way that you're actually feeling something of what they feel. You identify with the person who wronged you. Raise your hand if that's uncomfortable. Uh Uh-huh. Not everyone was listening, otherwise all the hands would have been up. But then it gets more uncomfortable. To have pity on someone who wronged us means that we actually roll up our sleeves with the Lord and we allow, we permit, we give him freedom to do whatever he has to do in our hearts so that we in a very deep way comprehend how very much me and the person who hurt me have in common. We put ourselves in their place. We empathize with them. We sympathize with them. How's that feel now? It's not even close to the sort of thing that anyone's heart would just automatically leap toward doing, would it? Because our fleshly human nature wants more than anything to continue to draw very deep distinctions between us and the person who's hurt us. All the ways that they're terrible and I'm wonderful. All the good that I do and all the bad that they do. How they always and how I never. And in the face of the thing that our heart feels like doing, Jesus says, look, if you want to stay out of the prison that is anger and unforgiveness at people who have hurt you, you must identify as much as you possibly can with them. That's Jesus' instruction about our hearts. That's what he's telling us to do with our hearts when people hurt us. 
You say to them at the level of your heart, this is what Jesus is saying, you say to them at the level of your heart, these words, I'm the same. Gulp. Or you could say it another way, I do that. Or you could say it another way, I've done that. Or you could say it another way, are you getting the point? I'm no different. That's me. It's a lot like when you go to an amusement park. And at amusement parks, they have these uh, cartoon sketch artists, right? You've seen these. I've never had one done because it would just be way too painful. Nobody would ever want to look at that. But even in the cartoon's good-natured way, they have to exaggerate certain features about you to make that caricature of you funny, right? So that means if you have larger-sized ears, what's the cartoon artist do? Well, you've got like really big ears in the caricature, if your nose is on the larger side of the scale, what's the cartoonist do? It makes it even bigger. They, in their fun-loving way, take one or two things about you and they blow those features way up, don't they? And that's the exact same thing that we do so that we can stay angry at someone and not forgive them. We caricature them. Let's say, just for example, that someone's gossiped about you and you find out that they've gossiped about you and of course you're mad that they've gossiped about you and someone says, why'd they gossip about you? What do you say? They gossip because they're a gossiper. You think of the person as a gossiper, you only think of them as a gossiper and so you reduce the person to the thing that they did against you and nothing more. They're just a gossiper. They're not even a human being, they're just a gossiper. And Jesus says, look, sending your heart out to somebody who's hurt you Sending your heart out very intentionally, saying, I'm no different. Instead of saying, I would never do that. Instead of saying, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Instead we go, you know, I'm really no different than they are. And here's why Jesus says what he says, and here's why he means what he means. Because he knows that we can only stay mad, we can only stay in a posture of unforgiveness if and when we continue to feel superior to them and continue to tell ourselves that we're somehow better than they are. Because that's what unforgiveness is. It's a refusal to admit that we just might do the very same thing that that person who hurt me did. That I would do things like that. I could do things like that. I'm capable of doing things like that if given the chance. And so forgiveness is a matter of ceasing to caricature them. Your heart, Jesus says, must go out to them. You identify with being the same as them. If you don't, you're locking yourself up in the prison cell of your anger and unforgiveness and have fun with that. Next, Jesus says, what did the king have to do to forgive the servant? Well, he released him. And we shrug our shoulders and we go like, what? The king let that guy go? He did something terribly wrong. Yes, he absolutely did. He lost a lot of the king's money, which we'll talk about next, but that's not the point. The point is that in the face of that great loss, the king gave the servant complete freedom. The king released the man. Prison no longer hung over the man's head. And there weren't any conditions. There was no hesitation. It was a spontaneous act of pure, unadulterated grace. Nothing but grace. And when the king released him, what he was really saying was, look, I don't hold any claim on you anymore. It's done. No claims. And when we choose not to forgive others who have hurt us, what we're doing 
is holding a claim against them. We're saying because of what they've done to me, I'm holding this claim against them. I'm going to make them, what's the word? Pay. I'm going to make them pay. Archaeologists have discovered in ancient Roman ruins numerous ancient prayers from thousands of years ago. Prayers that common citizens would have paid money to have written down, recorded on stone tablets, and stored, preserved for the ages. And you know what they call these tablets? They call them curse tablets. Why do you suppose they call them curse tablets? Because the most common type of prayer recorded on them are curses. Well, what's a curse? It's a claim that someone makes against someone else for damages that have been inflicted upon them, right? And those curse tablets were something like this. People prayed to a pagan god or goddess saying, this person hurt me, here's how they hurt me, I demand payback and retribution. And so they'd pray to the pagan gods or goddesses, hurt them like they hurt me, inflict pain upon them like they inflicted upon me. And people would give the gods or goddesses ideas about how they would like to see the person hurt. And I actually have one of these curse tablet prayers right here. This is a prayer that a person actually prayed, recorded on a stone curse tablet. This was uncovered in ancient Rome. And listen to what it says. I invoke you, holy angels, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter the man named Eucurios, who is the charioteer and all of his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. And it goes on. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not squeeze over and overpower. Let him not come from behind and pass. But instead, let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him drag behind, both in the early race and in the later race. Just in case the gods lose track of which race is which and accidentally let him win or something. Stunning. And oh yeah, gods and goddesses, while you're at it, would you please inflict Eucurios with a severe case of halitosis? That wasn't part of the original prayer. I added that. But the rest was. And it's just stunning, isn't it? The guy's praying, Eucurios hurt me, you hurt him back. Curse, Eucurios. And here's what Jesus does. He steps into the middle of all that. And he like throws up his arms and he says, no, 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 stop it. Stop it. No curses. No claims against those who have hurt us. Instead, you who claim the name of Christ, you go live differently. You go release people who have hurt you from any claim that you're holding over them. You release them. You take your fingers off of their throat and you let them go. You release them and you release them and you release them. You let them go. Third key to the king's ability to forgive the servant is that he forgave his debt. And this is right at the heart of everything it means to forgive anybody, anytime. And this is incredibly countercultural, it's absolutely counterintuitive. And the key to grasping this is the size of the debt that the servant owed. The text tells us, in the New Living Translation anyway, that the servant owed the king millions of dollars. Some other translations of the Bible say 10,000 talents. No matter how you translate it, though, it's an enormous sum of money. 
get this, hundreds of billions of dollars in today's currency. I even ran across a commentator who said, this could have been a trillion dollars. And you're like, how in the world did the servant borrow that kind of money from, really, what's going on? Some weak lending standards there, I'm telling you. And the amount, understand, the amount that was borrowed was so enormous that the king's ability to govern was actually jeopardized. And the king had every right to sell not only the servant, but his family, as well as all of his assets, which would have netted a significant sum, not nearly covering the loss, but would have been a significant recovery. But instead of doing that, the king simply forgives the debt. Now, what does forgive the debt mean? It means that he, the king, absorbed the debt himself. The king absorbed the debt himself. The king paid the debt himself. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is you paying the debt yourself rather than requiring the person who hurt you to pay it. That's forgiveness. You pay, not them. Even though they hurt you, you pay. I know I've told you before the story about the time I crashed my friend's brand new Harley Davidson motorcycle into the side of a school bus. I could not have hit anything bigger. One of the most embarrassing moments of my life, really. And the story goes on, I think where I left it off with you was me lying on the street next to the mangled Harley, next to the bus, and remember, I hear this laughter, and I look up, and there's all these little kids, heads hanging out the windows, looking down at me, laughing at me, lying on the pavement. And I didn't know what else to do, so I called the Harley dealership, and I said, hey, I've wreck this motorcycle, would you help me please? I said, yeah, we'll be right up, where are you? And so they sent this pickup and this trailer to collect this formerly beautiful brand new Harley Davidson. And the Harley Davidson employees who showed up got out of that pickup and, and they were just instantly disgusted with me. They see a school bus and a motorcycle and, and like, who are you? They would hardly even look or talk to me. They just crossed their arms, they would point at the damage or trying to get it onto the trailer and I'm trying to help them and they're just like, no, no, we've got this. Don't ever touch a Harley again. I was so ashamed. And so they drive that bike to the shop. They assess the damage and it's like six grand, $6,000 in damage. It's a lot of money. So I find that out from them and I instantly start trying to figure out how I'm going to pay that. Dan and I had no way of paying that kind of money. We didn't have a chance. We had a few kids, could have sold a few. I was trying to figure out, like, is there, you know, I got two kidneys, can I sell one, uh, you know. I'm scheming, I'm making, how am I going to get my hands on six grand? One day, in that little season of me trying to figure out where in the world I'm going to get $6,000, my phone rang and it was my friend, the friend who I had borrowed the Harley from, the friend who I know had to figure out where six grand comes from so I can get his bike fixed. And he says, hey, Brian, he's all chipper. Brian, how's it going? I'm like, not very good. I have no idea how I'm going to pay for your bike to get fixed, and I'm so sorry, but I'm ever the optimist. You know, I'm like, I'm working on it. I'll figure it out, even though I have no way of figuring that out. He says, Brian, you're not going to pay that. I, I was shocked. Like the oxygen left my lungs. I was so shocked. 
what? No, no, no. He says, I'm, I'm paying for that. I've got it. You don't worry about that. It's my bike. It's my bill. It's my problem. I loaned it to you. It's okay. I got it. That's forgiveness. Now, my friend, forgiving me didn't mean that the $6,000 repair bill just vanished into thin air, right? He didn't just stop riding his Harley because I wrecked his bike. He had to pay. He paid. He didn't make me pay it. He paid it. He absorbed the cost himself, and that's what it's like with forgiveness. You can either make the person who hurt you pay or you can forgive them, which means that you pay. And when you make the person who hurt you pay, you can try to hurt them, right? You can gossip about them. You can slander about them. You can probably do all that under the guise of, I need to warn you about this person. You can dice up their reputation. Or maybe you just ignore them, withdrawing your friendship from them. Maybe in your heart you cheer for things to go badly in their life. And after a while you see the person suffering, and you start to feel like they've paid, but all that does is lock you up in prison. All that does is twist you up. All that does, you, does is make you more like Satan and less like Jesus. But when we pay, it's costly. When you want to gossip about them, you bite your tongue and you don't, what are you doing? You're paying, because it'd feel really good to just put it out there Oh, it'd feel good. But you don't, and you pay. And when you want to slander them and you hold those words in, you pay. When you really want to slice up their reputation and tell everybody just how it really is, and you don't, you're paying. And all along the way, what you're doing is your heart is going out to them. You're identifying with the person who hurt you. You remember how the heart of the king went out to the servant, and you become more like Jesus and nothing like Satan. And here's what happens. Little by little by little, when you choose to forgive the person or the people who hurt you, if you've truly forgiven them at the level of your heart, eventually what will happen is the anger will go away, and all of a sudden you'll start to feel the forgiveness. And did you notice what I said there? Because it works the exact opposite way that you expect it to work. You forgive before you ever feel the forgiveness. Conventional wisdom says, I'll feel forgiveness before I grant it. I'll wait for the anger to go away, and then I'll release the person who hurt me from their debt to me. I'll take my hand off their throat then. But it doesn't work like that. If you wait to feel forgiveness before you grant forgiveness, you'll never get there. And that's the prism of unforgiveness. Jesus says it's really very simple. When you are praying, Mark eleven twenty five. 25, when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against. He's saying that forgiveness, look, it's an act of the will. It's the decision. It's just the decision to release that person who hurt you from being in your debt anymore. And yes, it absolutely hurts. Yes, you suffer. Yes, you pay. Because you're paying the debt. And you're becoming more like Jesus. And your heart is getting softer and softer and softer. And you get to walk out the door of the prison cell of unforgiveness.
And this next little bit that I'm going to talk about is a whole sermon, maybe a few all by itself. I'm just going to like skim off the top of this here. Matthew 18, 15 gives us this incredibly important step in the forgiveness process. It starts right here. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. That's our instruction, church. That's our instruction, Christian to Christian. Brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother. If another believer, another follower of Jesus Christ, another person who's part of your church with you sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. And if you read the rest of the text, it sort of ratchets up from there. But that step right there is incredibly important in the process of forgiveness. You go and you have a conversation with them about how they have sinned against you. Which notice, by the way, that's the first qualifier to the conversation. Have they really sinned against you? And that's an honest evaluation that everybody has to have. Have they really sinned against me? Have they committed a sin against me? Does it meet that standard? Have they sinned against me? And your purpose in going in that conversation isn't just to tell them how you are so terrible. That's not why you go. You go because you want to set the relationship right. You go because you want to become relationally square, reconciled. Probably set the relationship into a better place than it was before this whole thing even happened. Which means that when you go and you have that conversation and you point out the offense, and this is sort of the framework for everything we're talking about today. When you do the hard work of forgiving people who have hurt you, the thing that we all need to do the very, very most, the first thing is have the very same compassion that the king had toward his servant. Do you get that? That's where it all starts. The very same compassion the king had toward that servant. And how did we say it? His heart went out to the servant. And we read that text and we go like, Jesus, what are you doing? And Matthew, what are you doing here? What, are they, what they're doing is they're foreshadowing the very thing that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, does for you and for me. Because Jesus Christ on the cross identifies with us the wrongdoers. He sees himself as he hangs on the cross as no better than we who did wrong. And he identifies completely with you and me. And his heart goes out to you and me. And that is the ultimate example of forgiveness. And when we get, when we grasp that Jesus' heart went out to us and that he released us from our debt and that he forgave our debt, an absolutely enormous debt of sin, all at great cost to himself. Get this, church. Then and only then will we be able to go and do that very same thing with the people in our lives who have hurt us and hurt us and hurt us and hurt us. It starts with us receiving grace from Jesus Christ ourselves. Take your stuff and set it aside, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads.
And Jesus, we just very, very simply say to you that we want to have the heart of the king. We long to have your heart of compassion. We long for our hearts to go out to those who have hurt us. Please, King Jesus. That you wouldn't let us stay locked up in the prison cell of unforgiveness and anger and bitterness. But that you would set into us the heart of the King. Please, Jesus.